Welcome, welcome, one and all, to the basement. It's a it's a new month here, and um, I have a topic on the show today that I have been really excited to bring up because it's pretty contemporary, and uh, it's just something I've noticed over the last few years that has to do with drum roll, please, uh, movies and cinema and television shows that are kind of popping up. And today I want to talk about international cinema and international television that's been coming over here to the States, specifically from Asia, uh, Japan, uh, more recently, uh, South Korea has really had a, I don't want to say renaissance or resurgence or anything, because they've always been over there doing their thing, but I feel like it's crossed over into America really successfully in the past couple years. And I think it all kind of goes back to, um, right before uh, COVID hit and uh, when, which feels like 10 years ago now. (laughs) And, um, but when Parasite won best picture at the Oscars, and this was just a phenomenal film. And, you know, if I go back and I think of movies that have won best picture and I finally got around to seeing this a couple months after it came out, I I didn't even get to see Parasite in theaters. I think back to movies that win Best Picture, Parasite really kind of hits those points at why this was probably picked to win Best Picture. Now, for anybody who doesn't remember Parasite, because like I said, it feels like 10 years ago since it won Best Picture, and uh, anybody who hasn't seen it, I'm just going to do a quick little recap and synopsis for you. Uh, Parasite's about the Kim family, who they basically live in like this small semi-basement apartment and they, they work these like low-paying jobs, folding boxes and whatnot, and they're a typical just family struggling to make ends meet, and they end up getting an in with a very wealthy family to kind of come in and, uh, you know, do house cleaning and whatnot at their house, and, and basically what uh, the Kim family decides to do is they all just pretend that they're not related, but they all help each other get different jobs to work for the family. And uh, what happens eventually is they end up all crashing at this nice, very wealthy house that this family has. And they learn, I don't want to give it away if you haven't seen it, but they end up learning that there is something kind of, there's something going on. There's something in the basement, oddly enough, (laughs) no pun intended. But, um, it is just probably one of the most well-written, well-paced scripts. You know, you, you can. I've never read the script. I should. I should probably specify that. But it, it just feels like such a well-put-together screenplay and story that it's trying to tell, with uh, character arcs, with both these families, and you know, I, I see why it won Best Picture. You know, I know our former president got really mad that a international movie won Best Picture, and why the hell can't we just have movies like Gone with the Wind again? But to each their own. Now, I want to say it took about a year, and rightfully so, maybe because of COVID, that we kind of maybe started to see the floodgates open up again with Asian cinema and, you know, TV shows kind of from overseas hitting Netflix and whatnot. Now, mind you, I've been a fan of films and just stuff from that part of the world for many years. I'm a sucker for good old 70s and 80s and, you know, early 90s Japanese animation or anime. Um, I've watched Akira Kurosawa's entire filmography probably multiple times. 
Ozu films, just everything for anything out of Japan from like the 1950s, 1960s, post World War II Japan cinema. I mean, people forget that Godzilla actually, you know, is a monster movie. It got, became, you know, what we all kind of know Godzilla as it is today. But if you go back and you watch the first original Godzilla film, it's actually a commentary on post World War II Japan. Very beautiful film. Um, I recommend that. I think there's a nice. I think there's a nice. I, I see it streaming from time to time, but I think there's a nice couple issues of a nice uh, Criterion Collection Blu-ray. But yeah, I've always kind of admired the style of filmmaking that comes from that part of the world. And I knew when Parasite was going to win Best Picture, it, the the floodgates were going to open. And maybe COVID put a stop to that for a little bit. Um, but it's, especially with a lot of the, especially with a lot of the prejudice that was directed towards Asian Americans last year that we saw to kind of see Asian cinema really kind of getting its due the past year or so it just it made me feel good about things i mean i i've i remember when i was a teenager um the what's called j-horror started showing up a lot of the american remakes of japanese horror films like the ring and uh the grudge and even though it was kind of a box office dud uh pulse i actually thought was kind of a cool american remake and it actually made me interested in these the original versions, and I would seek out all of the Japanese versions of those films, the original versions, I should say, and I just completely got hooked on the style of horror films that came out of that part of the world. Uh, first director that really comes to mind is uh, Takashi Miike, who has just made, I, I've lost track how many films he's made, and he makes these just very unnerving, uncomfortable slow burn horror films and you've heard me talk probably about audition on this show a few times it's one of my favorite horror films to this day um just the slow build to the absolutely gut-wrenching torture scene at the end of that film it's one of those movies that you know there's no jump scares but i'm sitting there watching it to this day i will give it a rewatch but i sit there and i watch it and i just ugh, i feel uncomfortable and I've noticed that out of like those kind of genre films from that part of the world, you know, they love to just toy with their audiences and make them feel uncomfortable. And they also love, you know, big giant monsters to fucking, you know, scare the shit out of you. But I want to start specifically with South Korea because um, a lot of Korean stuff has popped up on Netflix, specifically South Korea. I unfortunately don't know if we'll ever see uh, any sort of artwork, or any sort of form of art out of North Korea, unfortunately, because of, I'm not even going to go there. I don't want to get canceled by the North Korean government. But uh, South Korea, there is a ton of shows on Netflix right now that uh, hail from South Korea. And obviously the first one I'm going to bring up, and I'm not going to talk about it too much because there's probably been millions of podcasts that have broken it down over the last two months and I'm just, but I am going to touch on it because, you know, I've had people ask me about it and how, what my thoughts were on it. And obviously, Squid Game. Squid Game has been the big thing of at least the last six months um, on Netflix. Uh, I, I want to say, before it really got the buzz going, I, I feel like it was on still for a couple months, but nobody really had caught on. I could be wrong about that, but I just remember seeing it from time to time. And I actually thought it was just like a game show in and of itself some sort of uh, Netflix way of reviving those 
crazy, wacky old like Japanese game shows you see like clips of on YouTube and whatnot. But I never really clicked on it. I didn't really know what it was. And then, then it cracked like the top ten after a few weeks. And then I heard some internet banter about it, and I was like, huh. And I'm the type of guy, you know, when there is a massive, massive buzz for something, it's just it's hard for me to jump on it right at the time. I don't know. It's it's just me. Like, I kind of waited for the dust to settle a little bit on Squid Game. But um, I finally clicked play on it, and Squid Game is what everybody says it was. It was just um, a lot of great social commentary at the forefront of, you know, classes in, uh, in South Korea. I feel like, you know, they're touching on things that, you know, maybe I can't really give my two cents on, you know, I don't live there. I don't know what it's like to live in, in South Korea, but I feel like the filmmakers behind it and the creators were trying to make sure the audience got that. It felt like a real life horror film to me, a horror show, I should say. Uh, even though I don't even know if it's really gotten that label of horror, but it, it, it but I definitely was kind of shocked at what I was seeing, you know, the, the violence in it. That's that side of the world when they make violent things, they really know how to rattle your cage with um, violence on screen. And obviously, in the pilot episode, when you figure out what's really going on, uh, yeah, it, it really ups the ante. And you know, knowing who's gonna live and who's gonna die, and what these characters' decisions have to make, it's it's a tough watch on, at times. And I thought Squid Game was great, but I remember feeling that, um, and this isn't a knock on the show, but I remember feeling like it was going to be the one that starts it all for an all-out binge for people on movies and TV shows from this part of the world. And I'm not trying to pound my chest here or say, oh, I told you so. But because I've been watching you know, stuff like this for a while now, I just got to say it's kind of nice for it to be getting its due. And... um it actually made me go back and dig into a book I bought a couple years ago. And it's definitely, it's a few years old. It's, um, I, I say that meaning it's more than just a few years old. It's probably about a decade old. Actually, I take it back. It's more than a decade old. The copyright on this is 1997, but it was pretty mint condition when I found it. It's called Asian Cult Cinema. Uh, Thomas Weiser. I'm sorry if I'm screwing up that last name, Thomas, if you're out there listening. But um, it's pretty much just an encyclopedia on Asian cult cinema from from South Korea to Japan to China to um, I don't even know where else. <laughs> but pretty much those are like the main focal points. I mean, there's a quote on it from Oliver Stone that says, uh, this is the Bible. Here are hundreds of reviews of the world's most exuberant cinema. And there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of, you know, you're kung fu movies from the 1970s but they don't try to overload you with that because there's so much more from that part of the world than just you know shaw brothers kung fu films or early bruce lee stuff so i picked out a few movies there that i just gave a watch i'm gonna get to that in just a minute because i actually have two more since i kind of was diving into netflix and how they're really kind of throwing up a lot of or since they're starting to acquire a lot of films from that region of the world or TV shows. I, should, I gotta say TV shows. They're, they're bringing on more TV shows than they are films. Um, there's a couple more uh, shows from that part of the world that I think are kind of follow-ups to like, if you like Squid Game, you should check this out kind of thing. The first one I saw, and it just recently dropped a couple weeks ago. It's a real quick binge. 
It's six episodes. It's called Hellbound. Now, Hellbound is brought to you by the same director of another film that I know a lot of people in the horror genre have heard about called Train to Busan. Um, if you haven't checked that out, I think that's streaming on like Netflix, Tubi, and Shudder. So like, track that movie down. Um, forgive me if, again, like just ahead of time, if I'm butchering names, you can call me on it if you want. But uh, the director's name is Yon Sang Ho, and he... Um, he, direct, he directed Train to Busan back in, uh, well, came out in 2016, so I'm sure 2015. But he's the mastermind behind this new show, Hellbound. And it is um, from 90 seconds in. Holy fuck. So this show, the the main plot here is, to, to, to kind of give you the cliff notes on it, there is this weird occurrence going on in the world and it takes place in South Korea I believe it takes place in Seoul and it is a this just entity or being or something appears in front of a person and tells them you know you are bound for hell you're going to be brought to hell you're going to be killed and your soul will go to hell on you know such and such date at this time and um, so, you know, sometimes you're, there's one character who's told, you know, you're going to die 20 years from today on such and at this time and you're bound for hell. And then, you know, s some people are told, you know, you're going to die tomorrow. And like the, the opening scene of the film is just like, you know, everyday life and, you know, the, the center of the city. And there's just this man like sitting there watching the clock and he's in absolute fear. And you realize, you know, you eventually once the you know plot picks up you eventually realize what he was probably going through psychologically and but the wild thing is is these three giant just i don't want to say creatures they just look like these giant things out of a video game basically come running after you to find you and they beat the ever loving shit out of you and then you're incinerated and they take your soul to hell then they just, you know, disappear. And the shock value of it is just crazy. And, you know, you don't, you only see these three, I don't know if they're the, not four horsemen of death, but three horsemen. I, I don't, I don't fucking know. But you only see them like once an episode. And for the most part, the horror of the show, I feel though, is amongst the people and dealing with this new thing in the world of being condemned to hell by something that is just above what they can understand. And basically what this whole new world does, and I think there's a group that's formed called the New Order or something. Um, it's been a, about a week since I finished the show, I can't remember. But um, there basically becomes a big divisiveness in the world between this group that's formed and uh, just individuals who are kind of against this religious group. Um, the religious group is founded on the idea of divine justice. You know, if you're being told you are being sent to hell and you have time, maybe you can repent your sins and whatnot. And, but none of that's ever really been solved. And they're just kind of making money off this idea. It's really about divisiveness and culture and, you know, I look at everything in America and um, I was just so impacted by this show because it just felt like America. 
you know, just taking some sort of idea out there in the world and whether you agree with it or you don't agree with it, just like look what it does to society. And it was very scary outside of these three giant creatures coming to completely fuck you up and take you to hell. That was even scarier. And like I said, the show is th six episodes, but it's really kind of split into three, three each, or I should say the first three episodes kind of follow a main storyline. It's kind of like when all these occurrences started to happen and what comes of it. And it follows these certain characters and I'm not going to give away what happens to them. And the last three episodes follow like a new set of characters. Like it's, I think it's like five years later. And the main characters of the last three episodes are a married couple that just had a baby. And as a soon-to-be father, this uh, kind of scared the shit out of me. But <laughs> um, um, their child's like a day or two old. And he's in like, you know, he's in the hospital. Um, and the mother's going to see him in a and this doesn't give anything away, but it's just the main plot point to kick off the last three episodes. Uh, the mother's going to visit her baby, and as she walks into the room, there is that entity that bounds you to hell and says, basically tells this child that has no idea what the fuck is going on, that you have, you know, three days till you're bound for hell. And it just becomes this tense, tense handful of episodes of how are these parents going to shield their children or how are these parents going to shield their child from being taken to hell by these giant creatures? And um, someone from the first three episodes returns for these episodes and is a, a really pivotal character, it turns out. And, I, I mean, th this show's 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. I definitely see a lot of connection to the tone of something like Train to Basan. Um, again, made by the same director. And I believe Train to Busan also is getting an American remake. Hopefully it matches up, but sometimes, hopefully it matches up to the success and impact it had. But, you know, you can never be sure. So Hellbound on Netflix, by the way, is just fucking awesome. Um, I am currently also watching another... Uh, South Korean TV show that premiered back in 2020, Sweet Home is what it's called. Uh, it's it's a little it, it, it's it, I don't I wouldn't put it on the level of Hellbound or Squid Game or another one I should mention uh, called The Kingdom, which is kind of like a, a zombie uh, TV show that takes place hundreds and hundreds of years ago in Asia, um, but. Sweet Sweet Home is kind of like a, it's not really a zombie thing, because they don't turn into zombies, but they do kind of turn into zombies, but they don't look like, you know, zombies from The Walking Dead. Uh, people turn into like these really fucking crazy creatures. But, um, you know, quick, quick plot synopsis is uh, pretty much, you know, the world goes post-apocalyptic, and we are not... We are, as an audience, are in this high-rise apartment complex, kind of a low-end high-rise apartment complex, with um, you know these different characters dealing with this apocalyptic thing going on outside, and pretty much these human beings are just turning into these savage monsters. And uh, the main focus of the show, at least for where I'm at right now, I haven't fully finished it. Is there's like a troubled teenager? He's very suicidal. Um, he teams up with his neighbors to pretty much survive and, you know, fight off these monsters that have made their way into the, into the building. Now, 
dramatics, I think it still hits for me. But I think there's little moments that I don't, I don't know, like aren't really for me. I think the creature effects are absolutely awesome. They mix practical and CGI really well. You know, there's parts that look like a video game, but I still think work. And I think, you know, when you get up close to these creatures and how practical that they can look, I think it's a pretty special thing too. You know, they, they really know how to knock it out of the park over there. Um, but some things that don't work for me is, and like, if you want to check this out, be my guest. I'm just binging through Korean and Asian uh, cinema on, on the streamers as of late. But if you, if you, but one thing that kind of bothers me is uh, the song Warriors by Imagine Dragons is like woven in and out of the episodes. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not going to knock Imagine Dragons. I mean, I don't really go out of my way to buy their albums or anything. But it it just kind of comes off weird, and I think maybe they edited it in there to maybe, I don't know, the vibe I got is just like, we're going to put an American band in this show, with their put their song in this show, and maybe it'll have some crossover appeal, and I think it actually comes off a little laughable, but that's just me. Maybe it's because of how it's edited, it's not like this... F- song at the forefront it's almost very faint it just comes off a little weird to me that's my one nitpick of it you know there, there is kind of some there are just kind of some things that aren't for me but the, like the I guess you can say like the fighting of the monsters and some of the the gore tactics and the creatures are really cool and really fun I do recommend it but it's not as good as Hellbound or Squid Game or um, The Kingdom or uh, even Parasite obviously but Again, if you want to do a deep dive into those kind of movies or those shows, do it up. So to sum it all up, um, we've really seen kind of a rise in the States with interest in, you know, these kind of films. You know, I, I think just like how in the early 2000s, uh, Japanese horror that was making a transition to this part of the world was called J-horror. Um, but now because there's a lot of Korean films making their way over here and the Korean film and TV industry has been around for a while. I just think now it's gotten some stateside success. And so let's not act like, you know, this is a new thing. Like they, they've been around for a while. I think it was the director of Train to Busan and Hellbound. There's an article I found um, a few a little while back that he just basically was defending that idea too. Like, look, we've been here for a while. Let's not, you know, let's not think this is anything new. The, these films... These kind of films have been around for, you know, 20, 30, 40 years and whatnot, probably even longer. But but I think it is with something like Parasite taking Best Picture and being such a good, well-crafted drama and dark comedy and thriller. It's like multi-genre. I thought it was a horror movie before I um, before I even got around to seeing it. I, I, I didn't know really what to expect. I mean, the name Parasite kind of sounds like you could make a really bad campy horror film out of, out of it. But it ended up being a really well-paced-together, uh, dark, comedic thriller um, with a great message about, you know, social class in South Korea, which is kind of something you... It's not kind of. It's, it's definitely something you see in Squid Game. You know, maybe if it wasn't for Parasite, maybe Squid Game never would have got the green lit. I don't know. That's just... I'm just trying to put one and one together... But, you know, there's also been other great things. Um, the the film last award season, Minari, uh, is a South Korean actress. Forgive me again if I'm butchering names. I'm so sorry. But uh, Yoo Jung Yoon's 
win for Best Supporting Actress, and Minari, uh, again, I think, just propelled things forward. And we obviously want more of this in the States, so if we're going to get more of it, let's enjoy it, let's celebrate it, let's not expose it or exploit it, let's just take it for what it is. And there's actually, I think, a lot of great similarities between the messages they're trying to convey in their films and a lot of messages we're trying to convey in our films that are out there in the States. Now, with that all being said, I, like I said a few minutes ago, I dug up Asian cult cinema, a book I found at a store called Grindhouse Video in Tampa, Florida, which I heard recently that store is now in Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, But a new store has taken its place, and I got to make my way out there to check out that new store. But Asian cult cinema, um, I kind of just made a list of a few films, and I tracked them down on uh, like YouTube VHS rips. And you know, some of them, I won't lie, had you know martial arts in them, which you know, I know I was kind of I think setting a goal to get away from that, but I think just because this was like my first dive into the book, really, and trying to. Uh, just find some films to hunt down. Maybe I was playing it safe and I found some martial arts films, but predominantly a few of them actually are kind of have like a cool little vibe to them. And I think that's why I went with them. So I got a few, I've watched them and I'm going to give you my thoughts and away we go. So first up on this list is a movie called Death Cage. Now that title alone sounds very over the top, very... Uh, 80s B-movie, you know, with some sort of hot title uh, to sell. You you know, Death Cage just oozes god-awful tropes, but a lot of violence. And that's exactly what it is. Um, I I was going for a little more sophistication, but this is cult cinema, so you are going to get things like that. And uh, Death Cage is a martial arts film obviously, Um, and the term death cage uh, comes from the final act of the movie. In the culmination of the film, the, you know, our hero and our villain have a duel in front of a crowd at like a martial arts event in a bamboo covered, I guess it's like a bamboo, like thick bamboo uh, covered cage. And there's like, you know, sharpened bamboo spikes pointing out. So it's going to get pretty violent. It's going to get pretty gory. And um, so I found this movie on a on YouTube for free. But it was not in English. And it wasn't in uh, Mandarin or Cantonese or uh, anything. Because I believe it's a, it was a Chinese production. But it was not all, um, you know, not entirely Asian cast. There was actually some uh, old-time martial arts experts from America that are in the film. We'll get to that in just a second. But the DVD or the VHS or DVD rip was, (laughs) it was in Spanish and there was no subtitles. So I was, I watched the entire 90-minute movie uh, just kind of able to figure out what's going on. I did some research on my own. I don't recommend looking this movie up. If you want to just, you know, fast forward like the the fight scenes and whatnot, that'll at least tickle your fancy a little bit because the fight scenes are actually kind of cool but the way they're shot are very basic very generic this is a pretty low budget movie you know it it was fun I mean if you want to turn your brain off for 90 minutes and drink a few beers with some friends and laugh at a martial arts movie here you go this is kind of like a midnight you know cult movie but again it, it was a Spanish dub 
I believe it was like a multi-country production because there were a lot of American names in the tight in the there were a lot of American names in the credits. Uh, there was also a lot of um, Asian names in the credits. Um, to give you the plot synopsis real quick, uh, Death Cage is about a it's about like two rival martial arts schools. So it's got kind of a karate kid vibe to it at times. Uh, one school is the Wan Chai Gym which is led by Master Tang Chuan. And the other one is kind of the rival villain gym uh, called Kent's Gym. And it's run by American martial artist Mr. Kent. And the rival schools each have their best fighter compete in the fight, you know, like a, a fighting tournament, basically. And as the competitors fight, um, you know, one kind of gets the upper hand, and then, you know, another one gets the upper hand, and then it kind of culminates... Um, into one ends up losing their gym obviously the kents are the bad guys so they take over the gym and um you know it kind of turns into this character arc and again i saw this on a different language without any dub (laughs) or any subtitles so this is just research i'm getting from the the internet so the main character from the um the good guy, Jim, I guess we can say, is looking for retribution, and, you know, he starts training and whatnot, and, you know, obviously it culminates with him having to go to war with the Kent Jim, and actually, uh, martial arts, like, I think he's like a martial arts champion um, in America, uh, Joe Lewis, I don't really know too much about him, but he plays Mr. Kent, and, um... Again, I don't know much about him, but he's like the only, well, he's not the only, but he's, you know, a main character. And he's, you know, like, you know, this white guy showing up in a movie that's take place in Thailand. But there is one standout, recognizable actor that is in this movie. Um, he didn't do a lot of films, but he had a big break in the mid-90s. His real life name is Sho Wan Poor. He's known professionally, though, as Robin Sho. I'm, I'm sorry if I'm butchering it. Again, I'm very sorry. Um, he's a Hong Kong-American actor, martial artist, and he's a stuntman. And, you know, he was in little low-budget martial art films you know, overseas in Hong Kong in the 80s. And if you don't recognize that name, well, I'm sure you recognize the Mortal Kombat movies from the 90s. He played Liu Kang, and... You know, I always kind of wondered, you know, he never really did anything. Oh, he also followed up and was in um, the Chris Farley movie, Beverly Hills Ninja. And I think later on he popped up in that random Street Fighter sequel in like 2009, Street Fighter, The Legend of Chun-Li. But this was like kind of his first, not really his first, but he was in these little low-budget martial art films. And he's the hero of the movie. Uh, again, like I said, it culminates with a big fight scene in this bamboo cage of death, which must be hence why it's called Death Cage. Again, there's nothing really out of the ordinary here. It's pretty standard. I don't really recommend you go watch it, but again, I'm just taking titles out of my Asian cult cinema. Um, but if you really want to turn your brain off, laugh at some things, and I think there are some fighting techniques that fans of the genre can really get into so check out death cage it's for free on youtube in spanish if you speak perfect freaking spanish you'll have no problem if you i know a little bit of spanish so i was able to navigate some things but if you have no clue 
how to speak a word of Spanish, uh, good luck to you. I'm sure there's like a Blu-ray somewhere in the bowels of the internet you can order, but um, it's free on YouTube if you want to check it out. Next up is uh, 1993's Tai Chi Master, and I feel like this is the second time I've watched this movie. It stars the great Jet Li in it in a early role before he kind of crossed over into American success. Yeah, he, he, throughout the 90s, popped up in a lot of, uh, you know, Hong Kong action films. And, you know, I remember kind of after he broke through into America, uh, you started seeing a lot of these movies show up on shelves at blockbusters and whatnot. And, you know, I'd go and rent these movies because I think they were coming out at the time. But really, it was just, I guess, you know, American production companies and distribution companies were buying up these old titles that had already been out for three, four, five, six, ten years and re-releasing them in America. So there was a lot of, like, Jet Li. I think it happened It happened with Jackie Chan, too. I feel like there were some movies that came out ten years prior to Rumble in the Bronx that got a stateside release that didn't when they came out in Hong Kong because I think there's a lot of... Uh, I, I just remember seeing Rumble... I'll get back to Tai Chi Master in a minute, but I remember uh, when Rumble in the Bronx came out, um, all of a sudden, like, you could get Police Story, which came out, like, 10 years earlier in Hong Kong. Um, I don't know the exact dates. I could be a little wrong about that. But um, I remember seeing Tai Chi Master. Now, back on that movie. Um, I want to say, like, six or seven years ago, Hulu just had all these uh, old Golden Harvest and Shaw Brother and all these kung fu movies that just, just there streaming. This is when Hulu was a little more, I guess you could say they were kind of just throwing stuff up on their streaming service. And this was before like Criterion started their channel. So they had like Criterion movies and whatnot. So Hulu just had all these brands up there and they had just this influx of kung fu films. And I just found like an early Jet Li movie on there and I popped it on one day. I think it was right after I moved to Florida and I didn't have a job and I wasn't trying to go around, you know, just spending all this money. So I was just sitting at home watching random stuff. And I didn't really, I don't think I really remember paying attention much to it. But when this popped up in the, the book, I, of course, I'm going to put a Jet Li movie on this list. And, you know, you really can't go wrong with Jet Li. And the, the overall plot of Tai Chi Master is really really interesting it's a good um it's a good revenge story but not like revenge is a strong word well here's the plot <laughs> it's about two shaolin monks uh one is kind of very placid humble very calming and you know the kind of like how monks are and the one the other one is he's very fiery and he's very competitive and you know has a chip on his shoulder basically and they're they're both expelled from their monk temple after a false accusation of cheating, and the two of them both embark on these different paths before being reunited when one of them betrays the other and nearly kills him in combat. Uh, being the fiery one ends up almost killing the humble one. And while recuperating, uh, the, month, the monk, i.e. Jet Li, uh, discovers the power of the slow, graceful martial arts of Tai Chi. Now, I also want to address the fact that I think if you YouTube search, which is where I saw this movie on, I saw all these movies on YouTube. You can find so many kung fu films from the 70s, 80s, and 90s on YouTube. I can't guarantee what the audio and visual quality is of them, but hey, it's free streaming, basically. But uh, keep in mind, I think there's like two or three movies 
called Tai Chi Master that have been released out into the world. There's one that looks a little older, and I actually, I think I watched like 10, 15 minutes of it and saw Jet Li wasn't in it, so I shut it off, but it actually was kind of cool. I don't know if they're the same movies or if they're remakes and whatnot, because this one came out in 93. Um, however, I, 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 I think this is just a really fun, you know, Hong Kong uh, action martial arts film. And, um, I mean, Jet Li did, you know, a dozen of these, even, I shouldn't even say a dozen, he probably did like 20 or 30 of them before he crossed over to success in the States. And, you know, the movie kind of has a similar plot to a, a film that I believe he did, I think back in 2005, 2006, and I want to say it was, people had mentioned it as like his last movie or his last film of you know, playing a martial artist from, you know, the, you know, 1800s or early 1900s of, um, you know, in China. I'm sorry if I'm kind of butchering that, but I remember them hyping it up. It was like his last performance kind of in this, in that kind of film, or it was his last movie. But then again, he has shown up every now and then. I know he's kind of taken a back seat from the spotlight of a movie star over the past decade or so, but... It's a similar plot to a film called Fearless, is what I was getting at, uh, which is based on a true story. You know, just kind of about a guy who, you know, gets his butt kicked and has to go get humbled. However, his character is a very, you know, kind of humble monk. But, you know, he kind of goes out and betters himself after he gets his butt kicked. And, you know, the, the climax of the movie has these really, you know, cool, elaborate fight scenes. There's one on this big contraption of just like a bunch of ropes. You know, and, he, and there's pretty much like an army beneath it, and he's fighting like a top general or something. And it, it's just, you know, what more can I say besides it's a fun kung fu flick? Uh, so Tai Chi Master, also on YouTube, on a VHS, a little better quality than um, Death Cage. So if you want to check it out. Next up on my list here was something that once I saw the title... Um, I, of course, I'm going to see if I can hunt this thing down. This next film is called Exorcist Master. Uh, it's a toss-up. I, I found out it was released in 1993, according to the book. However, I'm also seeing 1991 or 1992 on the internet. Honestly, it looks like it came out in the early 80s with the quality I watched it in. But, of course, a title like that, I am going to find a way to track this movie down, and I did. So, this movie is part martial arts, part vampire movie. And uh, just to give you, a, like, a quick, you know, little synopsis here, um, uh, the plot here is a priest by the name of Priest Wu, played by uh, Wu Ma, uh, is due to reopen a church after a priest died there 20 years ago. Um... His uncle recommends he does not reopen the church, but Priest Wu goes right ahead and opens the church. And the priest that died there becomes a vampire. I guess I guess he comes back to life. Well, so the priest who had died there has come back as a vampire. He shows up and is kind of revived by the church reopening. That, that plot point really wasn't translated that well. Um, but he wants to turn everyone now, and he goes on a, a bit of a... A, a killing spree or something of whatnot to um, turn everyone in the town into a vampire. Now, I enjoyed Exorcist Master for a lot of different reasons. 
you know, if you can kind of, again, get over the poor quality that you're watching it on, if you want to look it up on YouTube, I think there's a couple different rips of uh, the movie. Uh, some are in English dub, some are not. I actually watched it um, with English subtitles. Sometimes I'd rather see something as, you know, it should be. And I don't mind reading. Like, it's it's real quick to read subtitles. I don't know why people complain about shit like that. Give international movies a chance. That's the point of today's episode. Anyway, um, um, I, I think this movie was just totally my bag because it's just so atmospheric. It is kind of part horror movie, part martial arts movie. And how the fuck can you not love a movie that's part martial arts, part horror? Um, going back to you know what's on Netflix uh, with a show like The Kingdom with crazy zombies running around um, you know, ancient China and whatnot. It, it's just it's fucking perfect. But again, just a very atmospheric, um, very atmospheric sh- movie. It, it really doesn't feel campy. I mean, there's some parts kind of some of the special effects are a little, you know, cheap and campy, but I just got into it. And, you know, if you're just, it's a midnight movie, definitely, but it was just a lot of fun. And again like the rest of these movies they were just you know blind watches i was going based off of a title and you think something called you know exorcist master it's you know going to be kind of corny but uh it was, it was my bag um that's all i really got to say about it cuz i think you know anybody should maybe uh look this up and maybe get back to me or see how they feel about it next up i did i did 5 movies but the next two i kind of saved the best for last I did a Michelle Yeoh double feature. Uh, anybody who knows her, uh, she's she's been around forever. She's been kicking ass for like forty years uh, in Hong Kong action films, and you know, crossed over into a lot of American success. She really kind of is the big female martial artist that kind of went the I don't want to say went the exact way. I, they all didn't. They all went different paths, but um, you know, there's Jackie Chan, there's Jet Li. You know, you, you have all these. Um, men that did it. Well, she came over and she kind of was the female version of that, but I don't even want to say that she's her own person, but she really was kind of the lone, the lone girl in those, in that crowd of names that did what she did. And I'm sure there's, you know, other women that did it too, but she is like the most, she's such a badass, first of all. Uh, And, you know, she's doing a lot of big things right now. I guess she's attached to, um, I mean, she's been in a few Marvel films. She was in a, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, uh, God, what else has she been in? Uh, she's attached to Avatar 2 also. Uh, recently she was in uh, the new, the other new Marvel movie, Shang-Chi. Uh, I, I, a lot of their names are kind of that I forgot about. She was in Memoirs of a Geisha, uh, Tomorrow Never Dies, uh, Who Can Forget, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and recently she was also in Gunpowder Milkshake, and also Super Cop with Jackie Chan. And it's kind of funny. She's actually in Super Cop 2, the sequel. And it, I think it's actually, it's actually almost just as good as the first one. I mean, unfortunately, there's kind of a bad cameo by uh, Jackie Chan in it where he's dressed as a woman. And I don't know. I thought it didn't really work. But um, that's actually not the movie I watched because I'd, I'd seen that a while back. And I also just forgot she was in Crazy Rich Asians, which my wife uh, made me watch, and I thought it was fucking awesome. Anywho, um, my double feature for her, though, I kicked it off with a movie called Silver Hawk, which has a 2004 
release on it. So she's basically playing a vigilante uh, cleaning up the streets of Hong Kong. And, you know, she, she, she's playing the title character. It's a masked comic book style heroine. And she rides a motorcycle and saves kidnapped pandas and uses her martial arts moves on the bad guys. Um, yeah, that's really it. It, it. She's just kind of a filthy rich person, but it, she's kind of like a Bruce Wayne. And I, I thought, judging by the title, um, it would be pretty kick-ass. And it was, but, you know, some of the set design and whatnot, I, I, I just kind of thought it was a little tacky. It, it wasn't the best of um, the double feature. I'd say it was my second favorite behind behind the uh, one that I'm going to mention in just a minute. But um, it, was, it was cool to see, like, a kind of comic book style movie coming out of uh, overseas and, you know, their take on it and whatnot. And I don't think Silver, I, I could be wrong. I haven't done my research on this, but I don't know if silver hawk is actually like a comic book character or something from you know any sort of that kind of content from overseas like that but it was it was cool to check out um you know again her fight scenes kick ass like they always do in every movie um but again like some of the some of those early 2000s martial arts films i think they took a little more time to get their footing and you know i just I felt like they were trying something new in that, you know, industry of Hong Kong fight films. And this one just, bah, you know, definitely was uh, my favorite out of the first three that I've mentioned. Cause you know, my double feature with her was a uh, very, you know, very fun and exciting. But um, again, let me get to the, uh, my favorite one. Um, and I should also preface Silver Hawks, Silver Hawk, excuse me. Uh, I didn't get out of the Asian cult cinema book. I actually got it. Literally, I just looked her up, Michelle Yeoh, and you know, you know, her name pops up with a ton of stuff. And I found like that movie came up, and I was like, oh fuck yeah, I'm gonna watch this. But so I didn't get that out of the book. You know, like I said, the copyright on the book was '97. This came out after the uh, New Millennium. So, um, with that being said, my follow up on that double feature was. A little movie called Magnificent Warriors from 1987. I did get this out of the Asian cult cinema book. Um, this is maybe my favorite movie out of the bunch that I, I pulled from to put together for this little quick list. Um, this is just... I think that one of the reasons why I loved it is because it's a period piece. I mean, most of these films are period pieces, but it was a period piece that was I thought was very interesting. It, it takes place kind of... During the early days of World War II, when uh, Japan occupied China during the like late 1930s, and um, you know she's pretty much just some badass taking on the Japanese, and she partners up with a con man, and yeah, <laughs> what more can I say? I mean, there's just there's a great scene in it, and one thing I've always noticed about the film she's in, and I, I'd also preface. You know, the names I've dropped, guys like Jackie Chan and Jet Li, kind of the staples of this genre. Um, their films are never really, uh, Michelle Yeoh's also, like, they're never bloody. They're, they're never ultra-violent. They're never exploitative. Or they, they never have any exploitation to them, really. I mean, maybe I'm sure early ones, maybe there's a little bit of that, but uh, they, they never feel... They, I never walk away with a bad taste in my mouth with any of the death scenes. Um, it almost like they're. It almost seems like they're 
you know, trying to cause harm to the bad guys, but they're not necessarily trying to kill them. I, I mean, my my point on that basically is there's this great scene in Magnificent Warriors. Um, you know, it, it's pretty much just Michelle Yeoh versus a versus a village of people, <laughs> and um, you know, she escapes at the end and crosses over this bridge. And pulls out basically like an old school like Gatlin gun machine gun thing, and just takes down you know these group of you know these group of guys on the other side of the bridge. Doesn't hit any of them. Doesn't kill them and whatnot. Just kind of startles them by shooting at them. And they run off. But there's this one guy who just like falls down on the bridge, and rather than just leveling him with like killing him with bullets, she just is able to you know, aim around him and just, like, shoot completely around the guy, like, scaring the guy shitless. And it's such a funny but really good testament to probably the film she wants to make. Like, yeah, she wants to be in these action movies, but she doesn't want to do, you know, these crazy things that, you know, just kind of make you look away. I know I say, I I know I'd say I kind of, like, don't mind watching gore and whatnot, but it's kind of good to, you know, see people hold on to those morals and, it's a fun movie it feels at times a little indiana jones-esque so um magnificent warriors in 1987 i highly check it out um i did find it on youtube for free just like i found the other ones but a streaming service that i think i'm going to start to mention and maybe plug in the coming months and whatnot because i found a lot of cool deep dive stuff there's a streaming platform called midnight pulp and I've mentioned it, I think, before on a What You Watch an episode with uh, Chris Carantit. Uh It's such a cool streaming platform. There's another one just like it that's called um, Midnight Crush, I think is what it's called. And it's just, uh, no, Retro Crush. I'm sorry. I just had to look at it on my phone. It's all like 70s, 80s, and 90s anime. So I think the company that owns it's um, out in Asia somewhere because they, they, they really put a lot of films like that on their service. Which, by the way, it's free, but it's ad-based. I also forgot to add just a random fact I just happened to look up right before I hit record on this show. Uh, Michelle Yeoh was a Miss Malaysia. Um, I don't know what year, but um, yeah. So she's, you know, got beauty, bronze, and, you know, can kick some fucking ass. She's she's a great actress. A lot of longevity uh, in her career from, you know, Hong Kong action films to Marvel movies. Um Definitely probably my favorite out of what I watched out of this book, the Asian cult cinema book I got right here. So with all that being said, I've pretty much gone everywhere from South Korea to Japan to China to Malaysia to uh, Thai, Thai, uh, to Thailand, excuse me. <laughs> um, yeah, I just, you know, I definitely think... I guess there's a renaissance of these kind of movies and shows popping up in America right now, and I think that's great. But just always know that these films and these shows, if you're into them, they've always been here. And if you really dig the messages that are being conveyed in this these kind of works, don't champion them for a year and then, you know, poof. Explore international cinema, even if it's not, you know, Asian cult cinema, even if it's not, you know, bad kung fu movies you watch at two in the morning or or if it's an Oscar winner like Parasite. Um, I think you should, you know, I, I think the director of Parasite said when he won, either it was the Golden Globe or the Oscar, he said, you know, there's so many great movies out there. If you can just look past that, you know, little line, I'm, I'm paraphrasing his, uh, 
his quote, but if, if you can look past that, you know, little subtitle line, you can find a lot of great stories out there too. So I hope to do maybe with a guest or by myself again, just like this, you know, more films about international cinema. I know I've had a couple guests on in the past, talk a lot about, you know, um, Italian films of the 1960s and 1970s. I'm a huge fan of the Italian giallo movies of the 70s and 80s. Um, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Fellini, um, just to kind of name off some other uh, filmmakers from that aren't from America that I'd you know, love to kind of tackle and just do. Not that this was really an essay. This was kind of just scratching the surface on some things and maybe do some more deep dives. But I'm really happy to have presented this episode to everybody. Um, you can maybe look up the Asian cult cinema book uh, written by Thomas Weiser. I believe that's how you say his last name. I'm sure it pops up on Amazon or somewhere. If you're maybe looking for something like that this holiday season, it is December now. Um, so, yeah, you know, I recommend it. It's just an encyclopedia. It's just got movie after movie. And if you want to hunt them down, whether on Blu-rays or YouTube rips or some are popular, some are completely deep dives. And, you know, like you heard me rant, some I thought were really not great and some were actually a lot of fun. So, um, keep looking out there for movies, keep finding some deep dives. And with all that being said, I will see you all next week. We'll be back here with a guest, I believe for the rest of the month and, um, we'll start gearing up for 2022 and y'all take care. Talk to you next week.